he was only 25 years old and already his fame had spread through Tsarist Russia. He was the talk of the nation. His novel, Poor Folk, had literally swept the land. Royalties came pouring in. He was not discriminate. He was not careful. He began to spend all of his money in wild, abandoned pleasure. He also was not careful politically because he held strongly to the socialist ideals. He began to criticize the Tsarist regime and the Tsar and to promote his political point of view. Well, as you can imagine, you didn't do that in Tsarist Russia. And it wasn't long until he was arrested in St. Petersburg as a political dissident and sentenced by the Tsar to death before the firing squad in the coming December. That cold December morning, he was led in white execution gowns, hand tied behind his back, blindfolded, into that cold courtyard where he placed his back against the cold stone wall and waited in that chilly air to hear the last sound he would hear in his life, the crack of a pistol. Instead, he heard the rushing of feet and the opening of papers and to his amazement and shock, he heard that the Tsar had commuted his sentence to 10 years of hard labor in a Siberian prison camp. So traumatic was that moment that he suffered an epileptic seizure, something he would live for with the rest of his life. So Fyodor Dostoevsky went off to that Russian Siberian labor camp. And there he had only one thing to read, and that was the New Testament. And in that New Testament, he set, met something that became far more precious to him than his socialistic ideals. In that New Testament, he met Jesus Christ as his personal savior. And in the process, a lady would write to him, help him to understand the things of Christ. At the close of those 10 years, when he was getting ready to leave that prison, he wrote to his friend these words. To believe that there is nothing more Nothing more profound, nothing more manly, nothing more sympathetic and reasonable, more perfect than Christ. And not only is there nothing, but I tell myself, he wrote, with jealous love that there can be nothing else but Christ. Besides, if anyone proved to me that Christ were outside the truth and it was really so that the truth were outside of Christ, then I would rather remain with Christ than with the truth. Fyodor Dostoevsky left that prison and started feverishly writing again. He wrote his prison memoirs, House of the Dead, and then the classic that remains today, Crime and Punishment. But one thing happened after he left prison. He didn't fellowship with other believers. He stopped spending time in the Word of God. He began gambling, drinking immoderately. He was married. His wife became desperately ill. He had an affair. The gambling became a compulsion. He went wildly in debt. He'd beg his publishers for advance royalties and then spend them in gambling and waste them away. He finally had to flee to Europe to escape his creditors. And uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, if you read his literature, each one becomes more and more despairing and he died eventually broken, a penniless waste. And I want you to know that the tragedy of Fyodor Dostoevsky's life is not so much the material and physical decline, but it could be summed up in the words of the poet who said, the tra tragic words of tongue or pen are the words 
what might have been. Can you imagine what might have been if Fyodor Dostoevsky, with all that talent in his pen, could have developed a deepening discipleship with Christ throughout the rest of his life? That's the tragedy of it. You know, between new birth and heaven, something happens to the pilgrimage, doesn't it? The pilgrimage tends to get plundered. For Fyodor Dostoevsky, it spun out in a different way than it spins out for many of us in the body of Christ. For us, uh, we tend not so much to totally apostatize like that. We tend to continue to do all the right things. But in the process of continuing to live in a ritualistic, structured Christian experience, the pilgrimage gets plundered at the heart level. And we lose that fire, we lose that flame. And when the flame used to burn bright on the inside, we end up living with simply a flickering, smoldering flame. I'll tell you this, I love to be around new Christians. <laughs> they excite me. Because they got something going down at the core. I always figure I'd, I'd like to segregate the new Christians from the old timers. Wouldn't it be great if you have a section in your church right down in front just for the new believers? Don't let anybody else talk to them. You know, they'll wreck them. The old believers say, don't worry, you'll get over that pretty soon. You'll get to be a normal Christian before long. I've been praying for years for a partial rapture. I say, Lord, get the old timers out of here and let's get on with the kingdom. <laughs> you know how easily we slide. How easily we slide to doing all the right things, but without much down on the inside. I'd like to have a $5 bill for everybody in my ministry who's come to me and said, Pastor Stoll, can you help me? I said, if I can, I will. Can you help me somehow reclaim what I had when I first accepted Christ as my Savior? I remember going into the ministry several years ago now and observing older men in the ministry. I'd watch them do weddings. It was just like cranking out another wedding, funeral. It's another sermon. I sensed that somehow all of their work for Christ had become routine, had become ritualistic. And I remember telling Marty, Marty, please pray with me that my calling in Christ to proclaim the word of God never becomes a profession. But now, several years into it, suddenly I feel down deep inside this sneaking, nagging tendency become professional in the ministry. Uh, we did this wedding before. Yeah, we'd done a funeral before, preached hundreds of sermons before, talked to lots of people before. And to find that flame starting to flicker down deep inside. Yeah, you know what it's like. What used to be spontaneous for you in the Christian life is now a ritual. What used to be joyous for you has become a burden. And I say, somehow, God, revive the church, revive this campus, shake us out of this ritualistic, routine kind of Christianity and take this flickering, smoldering flame and excite it again and make something happen on the inside. And so this morning, after discussing Monday the critical nature of our hearts and how I'm grateful for Harry's reference to the Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart, for from it are the wellsprings of life. Above all else, guard your heart. 
I thought it would be well for us to let Jesus Christ instruct us on how to take that smoldering fire and have it be rekindled again in a very clear way. Open your Bibles with me, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 2. Our problem is in the body of Christ today we have a lot of smoke without much fire. The smoke of doing all the right things. So I thought uh, that we would note that this text talks about smoke without fire. And then Revelation 2, this letter to the church at Ephesus, not only talks about smoke without fire, but it goes on to say that what needs to happen is a rekindling of the first love flame. And then thirdly this morning, we're going to note that the text declares that there is a way that you can fan the flame of your heart. Smoke without fire, the first love flame fanning that flame in your life. Now, let's begin in verse 1. If you would permit me, please, just to read it quickly to give ourselves an overview, then we'll look at it in detail. Remember, this is, these are the words of Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus. I want you to note what a good church this is. To the angel, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have, been, you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You have found them false. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary yet. I hold this against you, Christ said. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent, do those things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Let's look first of all at the smoke without the fire in this text. Notice if you would please in verses 1, 2, and 3 that this church is a very dutiful church. I mean, they are busy about all the wonderful things of the kingdom. They are very much into Christian duty. Uh, let's look at them briefly. We'll go through this list of Christian duty uh, quickly. Number one, if you'll notice in verse two, he says, I know your deeds. Uh, they, they do good things. And you need to know that the genuine expression of true faith is a life that issues in good works. James chapter two makes that very clear. Don't ever get grace confused with the fact that good works are the natural fruit of someone who is genuinely in the kingdom of Christ. So they have good works. Notice, secondly, he says, let me applaud and throw a bouquet at you for your hard work. Don't ever get it wrong. Christianity is hard work sometimes. Sometimes it's hard work to pray. <laughs> I get down praying, dear Lord. Suddenly I'm working on my backswing. Saying, if I just slow that down a little bit, I think I could correct that hook. Whoa, Joe, come back. You're praying, man. Come back in here. Oh, right. I'm thinking, let's see. Who's coming in at 2 o'clock? Oh, that's going to be a bad, heavy point. Sometimes it's hard work to read the Word of God. Sometimes it's hard work to witness. It takes a little bit of um, discipline and strength. He says the church at Ephesus, not only do you have good works, but you work hard. I mean, you've really put yourself into this. Thirdly, notice the next bouquet he throws at them. Your perseverance. 
You stick with it. You're not quitters. Next, he says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. That's probably a reference to church discipline. You don't tolerate wickedness in your church assembly. Matter of purity. Notice he goes on to say, you have tested those who claim to be apostles and but are not found them false. Doctrinal integrity. You're concerned about who teaches and who teaches what and what their credentials are. Verse 3, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name. Now that's a tough one. I had a college girl come to me at a conference several years ago. I was preaching on commitment to Christ. She said, you know, I would be willing to commit myself 100% to Jesus Christ, except I am afraid that if I do that, I might suffer hardship in my life. Now, we are into comfort, aren't we? We're into just living in our little comfort zones where everything is comfortable and tailor-made and fixed just right. Sometimes walking with Christ means walking out of your comfort zone. Sometimes it means there may be some hardship, there may be some suffering. I think we have a lot of watermelon seed Christians around today. When our family eats watermelon on a picnic table in the backyard, a beautiful summer day, and my kids found out real quick that if there's a wet watermelon seed on the table, all you had to do is put your thumb on it and squeeze real high, and out it would go. And that's a lot of fun. Did you ever play the watermelon seed dead? You know, you say I'm shooting them at your sister and shooting back at your brother. And there's a lot of Christians who, when hardship comes, when the pressure starts down on your life, out we go. Say, Lord, you can forget it. Man, if it's not going to be fun, forget it. You know, we don't hear much about cross-bearing anymore. Instead of being willing to stay under that pressure until God does His glorious work in us and through us, we're gone. He said, boy, I'll tell you about you at Ephesus. You're willing to endure, endure hardship and suffering. Please notice in verse 6, if you would please, he uh, throws another bouquet. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. They were people who, who were uh, quasi, in fact, false, uh, claimed to be a part of the kingdom of Christ and permitted moral impurity. They had their rationalization how the moral impurity really was all right. And he says, you take a stand for moral purity. Boy, I'll tell you this. I read a list of things like that. You talk about duty. And I'm ready to nominate the church at Ephesus for Church of the Year. Except that Jesus Christ would veto my nomination. You know, there's a certain deceitfulness about duty. Where we just look at each other and say, boy, I'm doing all the right things and you're doing all the right things and uh, therefore I'm okay and you're okay. In all of this duty, Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, you're not okay. You see, they had a corroded type of Christianity. They had a blighted behavior. In fact, will you please note in verse 4 what Christ says? He says, yet I hold this against you. Stop and think about that. We love to claim the phrase, if God be for us, who can be against us? Did you ever turn that around? Oh. For Christ to say, boy, you got your ducks in a row. Man, you got lifestyle coming out your ears. But yet I hold something very significant against you. That's a heavy statement. 
Did it ever cross your mind? Did it ever cross your mind that God is concerned about why you do what you do? Now you must always do what's right, whether you feel like it or not, or even if you question your motives. But if all you do all your life is simply what's right, then Christ is not pleased. Because God is concerned about why you do what you do. Which leads us away from all of this smoke of duty that's so deceitful to the real issue in this text. And that is what the text calls the flame of your first love. Look at what verse 4 says. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. That's the tragic flaw in their lives. You say, oh yeah, that's right. I know what first love is. That's how I used to feel Way back when I first accepted Jesus my Savior. Man, I was so excited. I felt so good. I felt warm and fuzzy toward the Lord. And it was wet. The first love is uh, how I used to feel back at the first. That is not what first love is. Uh, we need to take apart this little phrase so we can understand the essence of this kind of flame. Uh, there are several words in the New Testament for first, two in particular. One alludes to time, in other words, first, way back then in time. The other one means priority. And it's very significant to note in this text that it is the Greek word for priority that is used here. First as in number one in the league of your living. In fact, uh, lexically, the Greek word simply means it is that person or thing to which everything else is secondary, subsequent, and dependent. Permit me to say that again. It is first in this thing. It is this person or thing to which everything else is subsequent, secondary, or dependent. It is what is primary in your life. Now the word love, again, is not an emotional word. It's the Greek word for agape. Uh, this text is not saying in order to be pleasing to God and have authentic heart-style Christianity, you have to have this oh, great emotional overwhelming feeling for Christ. That would be rather difficult. How many of you here are able to control your emotions? Anybody who can... You're kidding kind of a place is this? I don't have any problem with that. Some mornings I wake up in the morning and I don't feel good about anything. I don't feel I look in the mirror and I don't feel good about that. I don't feel too good about what's still lying in bed in there. She knows that. Don't think I'm telling bad stuff. I don't feel good about going to the office. I don't feel good about, you know, I have a Baptist hangover. You know, two pizzas and a carton of Pepsis the night before. You know, you just wake up, oh, man, am I out of it today? And I got, I thought everybody had them. I had a whole bunch of emotional buttons right across my chest here. And one's a feel-good button. And I'm going to drag it around. Oh, hey! 
I'm glad that's over with. All right, here we go. Great. Oh, Jesus, I feel so good about you. Wow. I can't do that. You can't do that. Let's face it, our emotions, the way we feel, are a product of a whole hundred dozens of things. How much sleep you got the night before, what you're struggling with mentally, hormone changes in your body, all kinds of things delegate and dictate our emotions. How unfair it would be of God to say, I hold this against you, you don't always feel warm and fuzzy about me. <laughs> you know what the Greek word love here, this agape word, means to yield. Listen, it's not a feeling, it's a choice. It is, um, it's not a feeling, it's a commitment. It's uh, when we love one another, we yield to each other's needs. That's the agape sense. When God loved us, he yielded to the fact that we were sinners and did something on our behalf. Loving is yielding. It's a choice we make. Ah, now I start to put this together and it begins to make some sense to me. You have forsaken your first love. Christ, and it doesn't use his name here, but it's obvious if you know your New Testament, Christ is that one who is to be our primary yield. Christ is to be the priority of my life. He is to be the essential first motivation in my being. He is to be my primary yield. Everything in my life is secondary, consequent, to him and dependent upon him so that he is why I do all that I do. I do it all for him. That's what it means to make him your first love. He's your primary yield. He's why you do what you do. I had somebody give me a button two Christmases ago with a little Christmas slogan on it. I loved it. It said, Jesus is the reason for the season. Do you like that? And if you understand first love, you know that Jesus is the reason for every single thing in your life. Now you begin to put that into the context of your duty. Why do you witness? Do you witness because two other of your friends are going out to witness and it's your Christian service assignment? And if you're going to be at the master's college, you've got to be into evangelism. All right, I'll go with you. That's just duty. Some of you guys are getting ready to be, to be pastors. Why? Why are you going to be a pastor? Because your mother introduced you to everybody your whole life when you were growing up? Oh, this is Johnny. He's our little pastor. I mean, what can you do? I mean, you got to be a pastor. You can't let mother down. <laughs> Why is it that you didn't cheat on that test? I wonder. When you had the opportunity to get a little better grade, why didn't you cheat? You think, wow, you know, you don't do that at the master's college. Or me, so I don't, I don't want to get caught. Well, why is it that you resisted the, uh, the onslaught of that guy you were dating when he tried to break you down morally? Because nice girls don't do those kinds of things? That's not the reason. Why do you teach a Sunday school class? You teach Sunday school class because the Sunday school superintendent called you and said, uh, Hey, listen, we've asked 69 people to teach this class and they've all said no. And if you don't say yes, I don't know what we're going to do. All right, I'll teach. This text teaches us is that if you are into all your Christian duty for anything except Jesus Christ, then you're in it for all the wrong reasons. I was driving home 
from the office one night and as I pulled onto the interstate there's a flower shop right at the uh, at the entrance to the interstate and there's a big uh, billboard over the top and they changed the and they boys have clever sayings up there and tonight it said uh, take some flowers home to your main squeeze I thought man that is really good that's what Marty is she's my main squeeze then I thought that does indicate that there may be a secondary squeeze. And I thought, I don't have a secondary squeeze, but yeah, she's my main squeeze. You know what this text, te- text tells us? That Jesus Christ needs to be your main yield. That he is your first love. He's why you do what you do. called devotion to Christ that all of my Christian duty comes from devotion to Christ now I think we need to let the text speak to us now that we've defined this first love flame need to let the text speak to us a little bit about what happens to it notice that the verse very clearly says I hold this against you verse 4 you have forsaken literally you have abandoned your first love I don't know why I grew up for some reason thinking this verse talked about losing your first love <laughs> is that ring bell it did for me for some reason I think oh we have lost our first love I, I lose everything uh, Marty were here, she'd tell you, we're always looking for my car keys, my wallet. But losing is kind of, uh, something just kind of happens carelessly. This text is much more forceful than just simply losing it. You have abandoned it. I was reading the Detroit News and uh, right on the front page was a story of a man who was walking down past a dumpster. You know, these great big metal things you throw all the garbage into. And as he stepped by it, he heard a whimper. He stopped and he turned around and uh, didn't see anybody. And he heard it again. And he walked over to the dumpster and he heard it again and he lifted the heavy metal tops and then he started to push the garbage away and down in there wrapped up in a newspaper was a little tiny baby. You know how you feel, feel about that when you hear it and I, I feel the same way. I'm thinking, how could anybody do that? Could anybody throw away something so precious? And I would say to have abandoned my first love for Christ would be equally as tragic to have consciously let it go. How does that happen? I'll talk to you about something that's very important to my own heart. I'm a third generation Christian. I want you to know that I could live the duties of this Christian life with my eyes blindfolded and my hands tied behind my back. I mean, it is ingrained into the fiber of what I am. To be honest with you, I've never known anything but enculturated Christianity. It is fiber of my being. And every once in a while I have to say, Stoll, what are you in this for? Come on, Joe, why are you in this anyway? You know what's significant? This was written to a second generation church in Ephesus. This was written not to those who had that great personal commitment to Jesus Christ at the outset, but to those who had been born into it. 
By now the church has come into its second generation and I think there's a tremendous danger for any one of us who are second generation believers who grew up in Christian homes, who accepted the Lord when we were young to live all the duty but to forget it is because of Christ that we live this duty. For Him that we live. Devotion abandoned. Let's just summarize it, this whole concept of abandoning our first love up like this. You know what I what troubles me about the tendency I see in my own life and what I see in the body of Christ? Listen very carefully. I sense that today people are much more into the system than they are into the Savior. We have systems of doctrine, systems of behavior, systems of denominations, systems of things we do at church, systems of when we go to church, systems of what we teach, systems of witnessing, and amazing we get into the system and forget that we are to be into the Savior, and because we're into the Savior, we make the system work. Have you forgotten that Christianity is a personal relationship with a person, Jesus Christ? Say, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? Yes, I accepted the Lord Jesus. I accepted him when I was 12. That's when I had my personal relationship. Oh, wait a minute. Having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not a point in history. Authentic Christianity is relating to a person, not to a system. It is a relationship. It is not a, re a ritual. And having our first love for Christ calls us back to the Savior, to relationship. And that is so absolutely necessary if you are to have a heart for God. Sometimes uh, early Sunday mornings I go into the office a couple hours before our first service. And uh, sometimes I stop at my favorite donut shop. And uh, my favorite donuts are um, at this particular shop. I got another place I stop. See, it's a, I'm an addict. I, I run for, you know, from being discovered. So I have two or three places I go. So, but um, in this particular shop, their best donuts are coconut-covered donuts. Dynamite. And the girl sees me coming. She knows what I'm going to have, a cup of black coffee and two coconut-covered donuts. And I walk in there in my navy blue three-piece suit on about 7 o'clock Sunday morning and <laughs> here all the night people are recovering from the weekend, you know, sitting there. It's a phenomenal contrast. I come in, Sparky all dressed up, pie ready to go, sit down. I was eating at one of those donuts the other day and I'm thinking, hey, wait a minute, you know, I've been eating these donuts for a long time. I really got cut out of something here. I never even realized before this before. It's not a whole donut. There's nothing at the middle. You've been deceived too. You never thought of that. I mean, it's empty at the core. I mean, what is this after all? I see what I know is that donuts are supposed to be empty at the core and all really nice and coconut covered around the outside. But I'll tell you this, it's not so with Christianity. Because with Christianity, Christ is to be at the core. You know what our problem is? We've made him corollary what our problem is. He's not core. He's corollary. He's just one of a whole bunch of things out there around the fringe. And I've said this lots of ways because I really wanted to get it down. First love. Christ at the core, not corollary. Relationship before ritual. Savior before the system.
main yield. That's what we're called to. And anything short of that is deceitful duty. And it's going to be empty. It's going to leave you vulnerable. Leave you screaming. There has got to be more than this. Because someday you're going to get tired of the ritual. Pat Williams, general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, with his wife Jill, wrote a book recently called Rekindled. It's the story of their marriage, how it deteriorated and almost fell apart, and how God put it back together again. In that book, Paul tells, or I'm sorry, Pat tells about how they came together. It was romance at its best. I'm an incurable romantic. I love to read books like this. Pat Williams was general manager of the Chicago Bulls at that time. He was a Christian. He was a bachelor. He was the most eligible bachelor in Chicago. Jill was Miss Illinois. She too was a Christian. She too was single and unmarried. God led them together. Talks about his honeymoon, how great it was. But he says, you know, there came a time in our marriage relationship. There came a time when uh, I was more enamored with the home than with the person in that home. He said, I told everybody, oh, we have such a great home. Our kids do this and my wife does this and we live here and we do. And he said, I spent all my time at the office. And I was just thrilled with the institution of my home. He said, but I had come to the place where I'd neglect the person of that home. Will you please note the danger? The end of verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Anybody know what that means? I mean, well, the lampstand was the metaphor of the power and effectiveness of the church in Ephesus, light and darkness. I tell you what scares me to death is understanding this danger, is that if all I do is live my life by ritual and I'm only into the system, the day may come where God may take the power away and the effectiveness away. It's kind of like Jesus says, look, is that all you want, the ritual? Is that that's all you want, is the ritual? Then you can have the ritual all by itself without the power. My greatest nightmare is that someday, for some reason, God may come along and rip away from me the enabling power to minister on His behalf. I can't imagine what it would be to live this Christian life all dressed up with no place to go. To work out my Christian experience and it be much ado about nothing. The danger is, Christ says to Ephesus, if that's all you want is your duty and your ritual, then the lampstand could be extinguished and the effectiveness could be gone. You can have your ritual. And I'll tell you, that scares me to death. So one night, Pat walked back into his home and Jill said, Pat, we've got to talk. After supper, they went into the living room, sat down on the sofa. And Pat writes of what Jill said. She said, Pat, I've been trying to send you signals for years. I've been screaming that I need you. She said, something bad's happened on the inside. She said, Pat, I don't love you anymore. She said, I'm not going to leave you. Our kids need us, and I'm committed to Christ. But uh, I want you to know something died on the inside. 
Now it is not true that Christ will ever stop loving us. But it is true that there could be significant loss in your life if all you've got is the ritual. That night, Pat went to bed and Joe was next to him. He writes how he lay there on his back. Joe rolled over and went to sleep. He said, I could not sleep. Tears rolled down his temples onto his pillow. And he wept through the night. He said, I've got to get it back. He prayed. He said, God, I've got to get it back. Lord, I will do anything to rescue that love relationship again. And he dedicated himself. And the rest of the story is in the book. How God made that happen. And the wonderful thing I love about my Lord is that my God is a God of second chances. My God isn't ready to cut us off so quick. He's remedial. He says, come on. He says, he says you've lost your first love. I'm not at the core anymore. Come back. Notice what the text says. You can fan the flame. If you've got more smoke than fire, you now know the flame of your first love and you can fan it. Look, if you would, please, at verse 5. Two things about fanning the flame, about coming back, reviving your heart again. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen and repent and do I love that. Remember the height from which you have fallen. He said, you moved down to a low-level Christianity, friend. You fell from the heights of authentic relationships. Remember the height from which you were fallen? So the first thing is, is to contemplate. Contemplate. Now this isn't just nostalgia, you know, remembering, oh yeah, I remember when Christ was at the core. Nostalgia is remembering things you never get back again. Remember high school fun before life got serious at college? Well, you're never going to get it back again. It's over. I came home from work and flipped on the set and it was set to the public television station and they were, you're not going to relate to this, I'm going to tell it anyway. They were playing a concert of all the great folk singers from the 1960s. The Kingston Trio, the Weavers, Peter, Paul and Mary. Now I want you to know that I used to love the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the Weavers. And I sat down on my couch, and it was about five minutes into it, and my eyes are welling up with tears, and everyone's down my tears. Oh, man, do I remember those days. Oh, wow. I'll never get them back. That's nostalgia. He doesn't say, look back. And this is a contemplation, a remembering that can lead to direct change. It's the kind of memory that can stimulate you to activity. You can do something about this. Contemplate and change. Notice he says repent. You know what repentance is. It's not feeling sorry for something you've lost or something you've done. It is a conscious activity of saying you were wrong, turning the corner, and marching in a brand new direction in your life. You want to know how you fan the flame? You make a choice to put Christ back at the core. And you say, from now on, everything I do in my Christian life is going to be done for Him. If I teach a Sunday school class, I'm going to teach it for Jesus Christ. He is going to be the main yield. He is the reason for that practice in my life. 
If I resist temptation, I'll resist temptation for Him. He's worth my giving up that sin. If I refuse to break down my moral standards on a date, I'll do it for Him. I'm not going to cheat because of Him. Because He's at the core of my life. I'm going to witness because of Him. So that all that I am and all that I do, I make a, a deep, non-negotiable commitment to put Him back at the core, to make Him the motivation for all that I do, that I do. And I want you to know something. There's something very important here. It's if you are going to have a relationship at the core, this first love reality, you've got to maintain that relationship at the core. It's not just a conscious, volitional, cold-hearted choice. It's a matter of developing a relationship at the core with Christ. My wife and I realize that we live very busy lives, fast-tracked existence. And life in the fast lane mitigates against intimacy in the home. And we know that the only way we can keep each other at the core of our existence is to take time together. There are times we get out of town for a couple of days. We've got a special little place we like to go to. Talk together, pray together, play together. You've got to take time with the Lord. Take time in His Word. Learn how to worship Him all day long by praising and thanking Him for all that He is. Pray. Fellowship. Repent, turn around, go a new direction, place him at the core, and then begin to develop that intimacy there. And soon you will find that you want to do things for him. And that he indeed becomes the motivation for your life. I told you yesterday about Libby. How she started to realize boys. Isn't it amazing the change you go through? When you're a freshman, all the boys are pimpled wimps, you know. Yeah, boys. You're a sophomore in high school. Do you remember? You're walking down the hall and you see this great hunk of flesh move by you. And you're thinking, ooh, ooh, ooh. Hey, who's that? Oh, that's Jim. You mean Jim that used to come to school here last year? Yeah, that's Jim. No, that's not Jim. That's Jim. Mm. Amazing how things change in one summer. (laughs) And I told you, Libby's gotten into that now. It's fun. But the day's going to come when Libby falls in love. You know what? Everything she thinks, everything she does, What she wears and what she doesn't wear, what she eats and what she doesn't eat, every place she goes is going to be dictated by guess what? That one special person. That's what it means. The Greeks had a great race in their Olympics. The interesting thing about this race It was a race that was not won by the guy that finished the race first. It was called the torch race. It was the race that was won by the person who crossed the finish line with his torch still lit. You know what? I want to finish with my torch still lit for Jesus Christ. The songwriter said it. 
Prone to wander? Lord, I feel it. I do. Prone to wander? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love? Yeah. Here's my heart. Take. Seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray.